0: Part of Albert Einstein's obituary from April 19th, 1955 in the New York Times reads as follows. I cannot imagine a God who rewards and punishes the objects of his creation whose purposes are modeled after our own. A God, in short, who is but a reflection of human frailty. Neither can I believe that the individual survives the death of his body, although feeble souls harbor such thoughts through fear or ridiculous egotisms. Well, if if you read between the lines of this statement from Einstein's obituary, uh, you, you see that he understands and perceives that we, frail mankind, need to believe in a God and need to believe in an afterlife. Otherwise, the fear, the pain, the suffering that accompanies this life, especially when it comes to death, would consume us. So, when a loved one dies we say, she's in a better place. And that helps us. We, we move on. But what if Einstein was correct? What if death is simply the end? Well, for the next three weeks, we are going to be considering together life after the end, from the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And today we consider Revelation 21, 1 through 8, and consider the end of death. Revelation 21, 1 through 8, is on page 1937 of your pew Bibles, or you can just start at the back and go a few pages. Let me read to us from from God's Word. Hear, Hear what God has to say to us this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, The sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Well, God gave the Apostle John this vision of the new creation, of the new heavens and the new earth, while John was exiled for preaching the gospel on the island of Patmos, towards the end of the first century. John wrote both what he saw and what he heard. And Christians have accepted this prophecy, this book, as God-given Holy Scripture, now for over 1,900 years. In our passage this morning, we hear of God, John's vision of heaven, and the focus is God. He is the main actor. He speaks. He reveals. Everyone else in this passage merely responds to God's action. They are on the receiving end. So this morning we want to consider this vision of God in heaven. And we see three complementary descriptions or pictures of God in this passage. We see God, the husband, God the Father and God the Judge. Husband, Father, and Judge are the three pictures we see of God in Revelation 21, 1-8. My, my prayer for us this morning is that we, as we consider God in the new heavens and in the new earth, um, that we would be able to endure through the trials and the disappointments of this life, this broken life until Christ returns and makes all things new. So first, we want to consider God the husband, the perfect husband. And we see God pictured in this way in verses 1 through 4. You will be helped if you follow along in your Bibles, as that we will be referring to this time and again. Look at verses 1 and 2. John tells us what he sees. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. John tells us what he sees, but if we were to see what John saw, we would be at a loss. You know, it, what John is seeing here is is indescribable. Uh, thankfully, John doesn't just resort to that excuse and say, "Guys, I, I saw a vision of heaven and it was it was awesome and heaven's for real." And then he, and then the book's over. No, he gives us he gives us much more than that. Thankfully, but but still, we're left wanting more, right? We, 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 what is what is heaven really going to be like, John? Tell us. But John understands. That's what is going to help us in the here and now and talking about heaven is not photographic descriptions of what he sees, but theology. You know, if, if he even tried to describe what he saw, I mean, I mean he, he does in a sense, but we, we don't have the words or the cameras to capture what John is seeing, So so mainly... John talks about the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He talks about God. He talks about theology. And that's what's going to help us. Like I said, you know, vague sentiment, lights at the end of the tunnel, little, little pictures that we, we get from, from dead people who maybe come back for a little bit and tell us what they saw. That's, we're really interested in that, but that's not what's going to help us. God is going to help us, knowing who, who God is. So, so, John tells us about the God who's going to remake the, the old heaven and the old earth into a new heavens and a new earth that will be purged of all evil. We, we see that in verse one. We see it says that there is no sea. Does that mean that there's no more vacations at the beach in heaven? Uh, no. Remember, this isn't a this isn't a photograph. Uh, John is. Uh, drawing from what he was talking about earlier in the book, the, the beast or the Antichrist comes out of the sea. And in the book of Daniel and Job, the Leviathan or Satan comes out of the sea. And Genesis, the sea is like chaos. So, so what John's doing here is he's, he's showing us that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sea for evil to rise up out of. There won't even be the possibility for evil evil will be abolished. No potential for paradise to be ruined at all. This is a state-of-the-art security system that God has installed in heaven. Because not only is it defensive, but it goes on the offense and it purges all evil out there. But who is this security system for? Who is God making this renovated universe for here? Himself? Himself? Yes, but look at verse 2. He's making it for him to enjoy this paradise with his bride. Do you see how the bride is described in verse 2? A holy city, a new Jerusalem. She she comes down out of uh, the new heavens and down to the new heavens and the new earth to be with her groom who has been waiting for her. We're going to think and, and consider the bride The church in heaven next week. But who is the bride? Who's the lucky lady? Well, it's it's God's people, isn't it? It's it's the church. He, He calls her Jerusalem, which was the capital of the once promised land where God brought the Israelites in to inherit a land filled with milk and honey. Yet we know, many of us know the story. God's people, Israel, was unfaithful. She was the unfaithful bride. She prostituted herself to other nations and other gods. But God makes a new covenant. He he promises to give his people a new heart and to bring her into his presence and to make her pure through the blood of his son. So what will heaven be like? What do we see here? Well, what more do we need than even just these first two verses? Heaven is going to be new. It's going to be purged of all evil and the curse. And heaven is for God's people. The church who God has made holy and new. She will be beautiful for her husband who has sacrificed so much to get her to this point in the story. God's people and God's place. The consummation of all of history. Everything has been leading up to this. Happily ever after has got nothing on this. Because not only are God's people in God's place that he has made for them, but God himself is with them in their midst. We see that in verse 3. John's vision is now interpreted as a loud voice that he had heard earlier in the book of, the, of Revelation um, speaks to him. It says, Now, be, or behold, the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. This is really the, the climax of, of the verse or of the passage, and really all of all of the Bible. The, everything everything is brought to a close in a sense here, you know, because God has been promising for thousands of years uh, to call out a people to be with Him. You know, we see that. Uh, God promises to be with Abraham and his descendants. And then he promises to Moses uh, that he will be with the Israelites forever. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel go on and on about this, about the coming day when the Lord will dwell with his people and God's people will be cleansed of all impurity and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. Well, You know, will God make good on this promise that we see here in verse three? It's so beyond our experience. Will He will He do this? Will He come and dwell among His people? I mean, let's be honest. It's been a while. You know this this book isn't getting any younger, and and the world isn't getting any better. God has already made good on His promise. He has already started the events into place. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God Himself already came in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're thinking, no, if God's already made good on this promise then, from in verse 3, why all the pain? Why all the death? Well, let's look at verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Here we are promised that when Christ returns and the new heavens and the new earth, God will annihilate the curse of sin and death completely. With the word with the coming of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, it is finished. All that is left is time. It's as good as done. The deed has been secured and signed in the blood of, his, of God's Son. It is a certainty that very soon death. Mourning, crying, and pain. And everything wrong will fade away and be cast off. We'll even have a hard time remembering it. I still think we struggle. We think, how could this be true? Some of us have have known real pain and heartache in this life. And suffering due to the curse of death. Many of us even in this last week. Many of us go to bed most nights missing and thinking about someone who has died. Missing them. We know in our hearts that this is not how life was meant to be. But we ruined this earth. We ruin things due to our rebellion against the king. And this is the result. we're suffering, where death, has the last word. But in God's presence, the curse flees instantly. Just as Jesus spoke on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of the storm, and by his very word, the wind and the waves were calmed. They listened to him instantly. So, when the old creation, when the curse of sin and death is faced with the glory and splendor of the King of life, death and the curse will shrivel and die forever. We are meant to take hope in this today and to rejoice and look forward to this day. What awaits Christians is no more death no more sin, no more poverty, no more divorce, no more child abuse, no more war, no more slavery, no more racism, no more pornography, no more prejudice, no more fear, illness, broken relationships, depression, mental illness, poverty, greed, lust, jealousy, sleepless nights, no more pain. That is our future if we are in Christ. That is our hope. All these evils will flee in the brilliant splendor of the King. His presence will banish the curse and it will never rise out of the sea again. If you are part of the bride, if you are a Christian, this is 99.999% of your existence, of your life. For this short life, we know great pain and heartache but it's soon going to be gone. Let's export the, export the joy from heaven into the here and now. God, like a groom, has defeated death and sin through the cross of Jesus Christ so that God's people may dwell with him as, as their, his bride in the, perfect, in the perfect relationship. Something that the most ideal marriage can't even get close to. It can't even approach the, the feeling of joy and fulfillment and satisfaction that God's people will know with him. So just a few words of, of application as we, as we consider these truths, as we consider our hope. Marriage is a wonderful gift in this life. Uh, God created uh, one man and one woman to experience great joy uh, in a covenantal marriage relationship in this life to teach us something about what God's love is like for us. But guys, marriage in this life is only a shadow of what's to come. So for my brothers and sisters here who are not married, but you want to be, don't live for the shadow. Live for the reality. Live for the real thing that's coming. For those of you who are married, and you're like, marriage isn't all that it was cracked up to be. I'm not as fulfilled and happy in my marriage as I I hoped. Well, It's not about our fulfillment. It's, It's not about you. Marriage is meant to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church can look at, the, at Ephesians 5 to consider this more. It's, it's a great mystery. But let's quit living for the shadows and instead live for the reality that is certain and that is coming. Maybe, maybe this kind of illustration will help you. My dad gets invitations to speak at many different places and teach the Bible. But he uh, he says no a lot of the times because he likes to be Home with his family and nearest church and and some of the invitations he gets are to go to pretty cool places and I and I uh, shame him for not going he's uh he, I don't know how many times he's turned down going to Israel and leading a tour there he still has never been and I'm like dad wouldn't it, it would be amazing to walk where Jesus walked and you know climb Mount Sinai and be where the apostles preach these amazing sermons you, you need to go and he said well you know One time he said, in heaven all that stuff will be a lot cooler. And we'll have all of eternity to enjoy it. And, you know, he he just made that comment as an aside, but I think that illustrates an important truth for us today. We are so easily tempted to live for today, to live for travel and vacations, to live for the hope of getting married. Or live for our marriages or our families or the pleasure of sex and jobs and and, and money. You know, all these things are, are good things. But they are all meant to point us to a greater reality that's coming. We'll have eternity to enjoy a relationship that is far superior to the most perfect marriage on this earth. Our vision and experience of God himself, where all the pleasure and joy that we know from families and and travel, seeing beautiful sunsets, will just pale in comparison to the wonder that it will be to be with God as he renovates this world and makes everything new. Well, second, we see a picture of God as the perfect father in verses 5 through 7. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his son, and he will be, I will be his God, and he will be my son. So different from what we saw in the first four verses and really most of the book of Revelation, God now speaks from the throne directly to John in the first person. Did you notice that? And it it makes sense after we've just read verse four. God is now with his people. Now he's speaking directly. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Uh, These words that God speaks here are reminiscent of the the prophecy in Isaiah 43 where God tells his people not to, to, to forget the former things and not dwell in the past because he is doing a new thing. What we have here in Revelation is even better than that prophecy in Isaiah. Not just a new thing, but he is making all things or everything new. I don't know exactly what was going on there. I wasn't there. John might have dropped his pen or his iPhone or whatever he was taking notes on because God has to tell him again, write these things down. He's already told him that uh, in chapter 1. But I think God telling him that to write these things down because these words are trustworthy and true gives us a good opportunity to, to think about God's word. How could they not? How could God's words not be trustworthy and true? Uh, Consider the source. These These words are from God, from his mighty eternal throne that has been established from eternity past and will be established for all of eternity future. Nothing can thwart his will. Everything God has ever said has come to pass or will come to pass. He has a perfect track record. And he reminds us who he is. He reminds us where these trustworthy words are coming from. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. It makes a big difference knowing the person and the power of the one who makes these ridiculous claims. Now, for example, if I say to my, to my son Sam, Sam, I'm going to be with you and I'll always take care of you. Uh, he'll, he'll believe it because he knows me. I'm his dad. And he trusts me. But if, you know, if some random guy at Colonel Summers, or as Jeff calls it, Colonel Sanders Park says to Sam, you know, hey buddy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be with you. I'm, I'm gonna take care of you. Sam's gonna be confused, right? Who is this guy? Who is this guy making these claims? And I'm gonna tell Sam, you know, don't listen to that guy. He, he's not, he's not gonna, he's not gonna take care of you. He knows that because I'm his dad, uh, he can, he can trust me. How much more with our Heavenly Father? How much more should we believe and value and trust His Word here? If you don't believe that these words are true, it's because you don't know Him like I know Him. And many of us here know Him. He isn't your Father if you don't trust His Word. You have stiff-armed His loving embrace. You have ignored His power that He displays everywhere for you to see. He created you, yet you spurn Him. Today is the day. Trust His Word today. No longer spurning His embrace. For we know that God will accomplish all things that He promises He is the author of all of history. He was there at the beginning of time when he spoke and worlds sprang into being just from his word. And now he promises here that he will create everything new and renovate everything on earth so that it is perfect. The Alpha and the Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And John is kind of using a literary device to show us that just as God is Lord over the beginning and the end, he is Lord of the in-between two. Notice what he, he says, though, before he tells us who he is. He says, it is done. God will finish the story. He, he will finish the story by entering into the story that he has written. And, uh, and he will bring all things to the, the final consummation. The last time God entered the story, the God-man, Jesus Christ, cried out on the cross as he died. It is finished. This, this verse here in verse, in verse 6 reminded me of that. Jesus cried out, It is finished as he took his final breath. Christ's finished work then guarantees that it will be done just as God promises here. And because of Christ's finished work on the cross, we don't need to clean ourselves up for God. We simply need to do what it says here in verse 6. To thirst for God. To come to Him empty as we are. Just as the hymn that we sing. The only thing that He requires of us is that we feel his, our need of Him. And Jesus promises that whoever comes to Him shall not hunger. And whoever believes in God will never thirst. Jesus also cried out on the cross before he died, I thirst. But all that mankind, all that the centurion could offer Jesus was a sponge soaked in vinegar and wine. Not very satisfying. We are thirsty, but so often we don't know it. And God holds out to us life-giving water, eternal life that will satisfy us forever. We can be, begin to drink of this water today through God's word. Well, who will drink of the water of life in the new Jerusalem that we see here? Well, look at verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. The one who will drink of this water of life forever being perfectly satisfied is the one who overcomes. Feel free later this afternoon to go back and look at chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, and that will give you a good idea of what it means to overcome. But for now, we are being warned to not turn away from Christ, to endure to the end. We must hold fast to Christ and this life-giving water till the very end. We need to conquer and overcome and be victorious over the temptation to drift away and go to the pleasures of this world. C.S. Lewis wrote, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It is so easy to slowly drift away from God, to check ourselves out of the battle, to forget that we are in a battle. But if we overcome, our reward will be great if we persevere. Do you see that in verse 7? He who overcomes will inherit all this. He will inherit the new heavens and the new earth and all these promises. And when Jesus confesses your name before the throne of God in heaven, God becomes your father and you become his child forever. The new heavens and the new earth will be yours and you will approach that mighty and eternal throne with confidence because you are dressed in the garments of the king. So far we've seen this picture of God as the loving husband preparing a place for his bride to enjoy forever so that they can spend wedded bliss for eternity together. Now we see a picture here of God as a father who looks to the overcomer and calls him son and daughter and invites him to rule and reign with him forever, to join the family business in a sense. God from the perspective of a smitten bride and God from the perspective of a son who thinks his dad is Superman, thinks he's the best. But if only the bride and the son knew who their father and their and their husband was. He is more powerful, more lovely than the wife or the child could ever imagine. And we see this in the third picture that we see of God in the new heavens and the new earth. We see a picture of God as the holy and the just judge. We see this in verse 8. You know the first seven verses here that we've been elaborating on the on the wonder of our promise-keeping God and the new creation, and then we come to verse eight. I I remember that we had Ashley and I at our wedding had this passage read, and uh, as I'm standing there at the altar and we're going through the verse, you know the first seven verses, I'm like, yeah, this is great. And then we get to verse eight, and I'm like, ah, uh, kind of wish I would have cut it off after verse seven. Who wants to hear about fire and brimstone, especially on their wedding day? But this wedding that we see here between the church and her Savior would not be complete without verse 8. For in order to God to create a new heavens and a new earth, he needs to vanquish his enemies and destroy them forever. He needs to judge those who have lived their lives in opposition to him. Earlier this week, a guy in the youth group said to me as we were looking at this passage, it sounds like if you've, done, if you've ever done anything wrong, you're just going to burn. And, and, you know, you could get that idea here. Does, does verse 8 fit with this picture that we've seen in the first seven verses of God as the loving husband and father? I think it does. Look at the people who burn forever in the lake of fire. These sins characterize their lives, and they are a description of who they had become. It says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of, the burning, of burning sulfur. This is the second death. These sins characterize their lives. Think of it this way. Zombies are all the rage these days. I'm not much into zombies, but I think uh, that kind of story helps us understand um, some truth here of what it means to be truly human. No one feels sorry for zombies when they get massacred because zombies are no longer human, right? They are just a shadow of a human being, and they are so bent on destruction and evil that we cheer, I guess if you're into that sort of thing, when they are killed, when they're put down. At the end, I think sinful humans are like zombies. They are so bent on opposing God and his people. They have lived their lives opposing God, and they have degenerated into the shell of of a person. They are no longer a person. They have ceased to be human because God created us to be in his image. We were all created to know and love God and serve him. Yet, when we give in to our sinful desires and these sins that we see in verse 8, we give up what it means to be human. God offers his blood to cure zombies of their worship of self. But many at the end will reject God's kind and sacrificial offer and they will rage against him for eternity. All the way to the grave, they will be raging against God, opposing him. This isn't a picture in verse 8 of people who want a second chance. This is a picture of people if given the chance, they would seize the throne and they would Kill God's bride. Kill his son. Although we don't always understand these these truths, why our Heavenly Father works the way He does, why He judges and punishes for eternity His rebels, we can trust Him. And we know that we deserve to be in this lake of fire. For even one act of rebellion against a God who is so infinitely pure and holy deserves punishment forever. And we've committed much more than just one offense, haven't we? We know what it's like to be a zombie. God says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sounds a lot like verse 8 here, doesn't it? And Paul continues, though. And such were some of you, but you were washed you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, of our God. God has justified many of you sitting here this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will overcome through him. You will follow Jesus until the end. But some of us, I fear, will give in. The allures and the pleasures of this world will slowly harden our hearts towards the trustworthy word of God. We will no longer seek the life-giving water. If you are afraid that this might be you, that you are not part of God's bride, the church, it's not too late. God offers sonship through Jesus Christ. God gives us this proposal. He will judge our rebellion against him forever. Or his son will take the judgment and the punishment that we deserve on the cross. That's the offer. Our sins, those whose sins are covered by the blood of the lamb, will live lives of worship and obedience towards God forever. They won't be perfect until this this final day in the new creation, but they will no longer be characterized by the selfishness that we see here in verse 8. Instead, their lives will be characterized by a turning from sin and a thirsting after God. Not perfection, but repentance. Well, how should we respond to this picture, to this vision of perfect paradise on one hand and eternal just judgment on the other? Well, if we're a Christian, we must endure. We need to persevere to the end. We need to overcome. John wrote down this vision to Christians in the first century and today to us to encourage us to keep running the race and fixing our eyes on Jesus. So Christians, let's not lose heart. Christ has overcome the world. He wins the battle. The victory is sure. The suffering, the frustration that we know in this life, the sorrow and pain of death, that's all soon going to be purged and God will make all things new. Let's live in light of this reality. Let's, like I said, export our joy from that day to this day. It soon soon will all be over and Christ will reign with his people. If you're not a Christian, if God is not like this picture of a husband and a father to you, hear his trustworthy word to you today and drink deeply from it. In order to enter the new creation, we first must become new creations ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Become truly human today by coming to an end of yourself, taking God's side against your sin, and casting yourself on his mercy and his grace on the cross. If you're not a Christian today or you fear you might not be, there's nothing I would rather do after this service than talk to you if God is working in your heart through his word today. Well, we should conclude. Einstein criticized the Christian God for being but a reflection of human frailty. But perhaps he had it backwards. Perhaps we were meant to be God's reflection, but we defaced it in our marriages, in our parenting, and how we carry out justice. What if we are not yet truly human? What if the words that we read here this morning are true and there is a perfect husband, a perfect father, and a perfect judge awaiting us on the other side? What if there is a king so glorious and beautiful that when we see him, we will instantly know that we were meant for him? that we were meant to worship and enjoy him forever. I wonder what Einstein and others who have died believe about God today. We can't ask them. But there is still one who speaks beyond the grave. His words are trustworthy and true. He says this to you today. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, who is like you? In heaven and on earth, there is no one we desire that is greater than you. You are the Alpha and the Omega. And you will bring history to a close and bring your people to be with you forever. Lord, we rejoice in these truths. We rejoice that you will make all things new. We thank you for the work that you have done in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you who have started a good work in us We'll finish it to completion until the day that you return. We pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.